You're listening to How to Stan, the podcast all about both specific fandoms and fandom culture as a whole. For more information about the show and the other show that I do, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. You can also go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how to stand for more specific information about this podcast. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to How to Stand. Today on the show, picking up right where we left off last week, we're going to talk about 10 more iconic brands and what made them iconic, how they have such a loyal consumer base that has turned into a loyal fan following, and how they crossed from a consumer into fan territory, how fans have taken those brands into their own hands and made the meanings of those brands all their own, so that a grocery store is so much more to people than a grocery store, a car is so much more to people than a car, a makeup brand is so much more to people than a makeup brand. How people have activated those new levels of meaning for brands is something we're going to unpack further this week. Starting with number one on this top ten list in no particular order, SoulCycle. SoulCycle got popular thanks to having a lot of celebrity clients like Beyonce, Michelle Obama, Bradley Cooper, I could go on and on. It became known then as synonymous with a day in the life of a celebrity, as opposed to just being something that quote-unquote normal people take. So SoulCycle spinning classes became known as so much more than spinning classes. wanted that elitist title from getting that exclusive invite into one of these very limited space SoulCycle classes. Every Monday at noon, SoulCycle had a system where they would book appointments for the week. So if you wanted to get in on a spin class, it was Monday at noon, the starting time for doing that. And that was chaos. Just absolute chaos. People flooded that site at noon. People flooded the lines at noon just trying to book their slot. And a lot of them would end up not just wanting to get into the class, but being a little petty and fighting over who got which seat and who could get closest to the attractive director of the class. All of that. It was all people fighting for what acting role, essentially, they wanted to take on in this whole production. Because it had that very staged air about it that appealed to people to be a part of. Like, they were buying into this act because of the atmosphere, psychologically, just the ambiance of the room, the instructors, and how they always hired good-looking instructors, and they set the mood with the music perfectly tuned to the spin class's uh, itinerary for a workout. It just, everything was very, very crafted, not natural. And that may seem like it would make some people a little hesitant to join and not want to do that. But when it's something like working out that a lot of people don't like doing, then suddenly it is appealing to join other people working out who also agree with you and subconsciously are kind of like, yeah, we know this is all kind of putting on a show because we're not really into being being portrayed as workout junkies or anything like that. It was a way to just have the reputation people wanted working out and having fun doing it. And so they all wanted to act like those infomercial people and sign up at noon on Mondays. By the end of 2014, SoulCycle had over 30 locations and were bringing in a revenue of $112 million, all for these spin classes. But there were a lot of things that changed from 2014 to 2017 that they had not seen coming. Phones stopped running off the hook on Mondays at noon. Suddenly, that rush to get into these elite classes was non-existent. There was no rush, and there was no elite class anymore. SoulCycle had developed so many locations across the country and had become just so well-known, as opposed to some insider-exclusive club only a select few even knew about, 
that it lost a lot of its appeal. What interests me about this brand so much is that it is all socially constructed and manufactured, like I've been saying, because it never was about the cycling. It never was about the actual workout. And if it was, there are attempts at having a Peloton-style at-home equipment sale, and other attempts at promoting at-home workouts have kind of flopped, at least compared to other workout companies, because for SoulCycle, it was never about that. With some workout companies like Peloton, their PR can have highs and lows. We all know the infamous Peloton commercial from the end of 2019. But at the end of the day, if they sell a good quality workout bike, people are still going to buy it. However, for SoulCycle, that's not the case because they're not selling the item. They were always selling the brand itself. And the brand felt diluted by 2017 when there were so many locations and it just wasn't that exclusive cool place to hang out anymore. It also developed a bad reputation because word came out about the toxic culture within SoulCycle and how the instructors really were just in a very, very toxic environment. There's a big deep dive about how their reputation took a downturn from Vox, if you want to read that online, which really dives into what happened to this company. As they say, how SoulCycle lost its soul. So the fall of SoulCycle was a convergence of factors. It wasn't just the brand was suddenly losing its exclusivity. Was that mixed with the fact that these revelations were coming to light, exposing that this was all an act? Like, the put-on-the-happy-face infomercial people that promoted SoulCycle were not who they appeared to be and their emotions were not genuine. The facade was falling away along with the reputation of this brand. But I continue to put it on this list because it is worth noting because of its strategy of selling something more than just a product, which is a concept that you'll see repeated again and again in a lot of other formats and is worth noting. Number two, Trader Joe's, which similar to SoulCycle makes people feel special to be a part of that group of regulars who go there and talk about this place. The best example of a Trader Joe's fan that summarizes why it has a following in the first place, at Trader Joe's List on Instagram, an account run by Natasha, a Trader Joe's superfan in Los Angeles. She's been running this Trader Joe's fan account for over a decade now, not affiliated with the company, she's just doing it as a hobby. She actually has a full-time job with Mod Pizza, so she's really just doing this as a side thing and is not affiliated with the company. She basically goes to Trader Joe's every week and she browses the aisles looking for new products and then she posts about those products. She posts her recipes with them or just the items themselves. She's basically the epitome of a word-of-mouth marketing campaign, the Instagram equivalent of Trader Joe's newsletter. They call it the Fearless Flyer that features news about breaking news. Here's our new product we have. It also features recipe ideas and stuff. So it feels like you're a subscriber to some sort of newsletter or some other exclusive invite you've gotten by following her on Instagram and getting, like, you didn't hear it from me, insider details. Accounts like Natasha's are so vital because Trader Joe's solely does rely on this word-of-mouth marketing. They don't have radio ads, TV ads, billboard ads. They don't invest in any traditional form of marketing, and so they let fans basically take it upon themselves to do the rest for them. Trader Joe's provides new products you can post about, and fans do the rest. It's an interesting informal agreement they have. And why are they happy to do this free labor? 
because they feel like Trader Joe's is reaching out to them in a special gesture that they personally want to reach out to you. Trader Joe's has a lot of localized appeal. Different artists, depending on the location, will be the ones assigned to hand-draw signatures and other design details on the building itself. Trader Joe's is very much a cheerleader for local sports teams, putting up those local sports logos and things like that. It just feels like it's a very welcoming place for people, personalized depending on which location you are at. Trader Joe's is also appealing to people because, because the average supermarket has around 35,000 items in stock. If you need something in a back room or on display, if you're ordering online or in person, all of that, the average amount they'll probably have not sold out at the time is an average of 35,000 items. Trader Joe's only has three to 4,000 items, 3,000, maybe 4,000 items in stock at a time. And what that means is that there is a lot less supply and it increases the demand. It increases people's desire to get in on that product and they want to snatch it up because it'll say, you know, two left online when you're buying it or whatever. However you're shopping for groceries, when you know that there are only a few left in stock, you may be trying to then just, just grab tons of it. And that's what people do sometimes with Trader Joe's products because they have that feeling of immediate, immediately need to grab it or it'll be off the shelf. Trader Joe's also makes a lot of products that are just unique and you can't buy anywhere else. So they maintain this unique identity that also is super receptive to the public that is shopping there. Number three, Wendy's. Wendy's has a very unique Twitter presence and social media presence overall that makes Wendy's go viral quite a bit for roasting their customers, no pun intended. Fans will tweet at Wendy's insults like, I just went to Burger King instead, or one person tweeted, you're stranded on, an I on a deserted island and the only food there is McDonald's, what do you do? And Wendy's always replies to these tweets very quickly. Wendy's replied to the Burger King tweet asking, what are you going to do about it by saying, feel sorry for you? Someone, when they tweeted about that island and all that's there is McDonald's, what will you do? Wendy's replied, befriend a volleyball and build a raft. They even roast accounts that seem like you can't roast them and roast those accounts by not roasting them. Seemingly a bot account or just an account that was not really in use with just the Twitter egg logo, meaning they hadn't changed it from from what it is just automatically when you sign up for a Twitter account. And that egg account tweeted at Wendy's, quote, if you don't roast me, I'm going to McDonald's. And so Wendy's replied, you are a Twitter egg and this is your only tweet. There's literally zero information to roast you about. Wendy's seems extra savage with these replies because of how often they happen. It's just like they are texting a bunch of friends in a group chat. They are so quick to respond and respond to so many people. So if you want to tweet a funny insult at them, you're bound to get a response. And it's extra funny because they use periods in their responses, which may sound weird, but Twitter lingo, I could spend a whole hour diving into and explaining the weird, the weird connotations Twitter lingo has, but the point being, punctuation really changes the meaning on Twitter, especially because punctuation is often just not present, or if it is, it's probably a question mark or an exclamation point. So when they just say something definitively, with a period, you're left to wonder if it was meant to be a satirical thing or if they're just very, very genuine. On Twitter, that's really hard to read sometimes, so it's just funny when Wendy's says something like, feel sorry for you, period. Or they say, you know, there's literally zero information to roast you about, period. And that just adds to the sense that they are, they're serious about something that they don't need to be serious about, which just adds to the humor of it all. The most well-known Wendy's Twitter interaction, naturally, is the one that had the most retweets ever of any tweet. 
A 16-year-old from Nevada named Carter started this Nugs for Carter campaign in April of 2017. He tweeted at Wendy's asking, how many retweets should this tweet get in order for you to give me free chicken nuggets for life? Wendy's replied 18 million. Obviously, 18 million was just not going to happen, but that's what Wendy's tweeted. And Carter tweeted that, quote tweeted and said, you know, help me everybody, I really want these nuggets. And so that took off like wildfire, it spread. People, celebrities and other famous faces and people with big Twitter followings started retweeting that tweet and sharing the heck out of it, really wanting to see him win. Probably just because it was so goofy and odd and people just wanted to know if Wendy's actually would fulfill their side of the deal. It didn't reach 18 million, but remember this was in April of 2017. And already by May of 2017, it surpassed Ellen's tweet and then had 3,430,255 retweets. Less than 20 more than Ellen's tweet, but enough for Wendy's to decide they would give him free nuggets for life and enough to get the Guinness Book of World Records to officially list him. It surpassed Ellen's post where she had posted what's known as the Oscar selfie with a bunch of famous celebrities at the Oscars, but people wanted to talk about those nuggets more than the Oscars, which is really, really something. At the end of the day, this whole campaign was not just some goofy memory and a waste of time in some people's opinion. Carter ended up launching this merch campaign to go with his Twitter campaign called Nugs for Carter, and you could get Nugs for Carter merch as part of the campaign, and all of the proceeds he did not take. He gave them all away to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption to help foster kids. Number four goes to another food-related company with an interesting Twitter presence, to say the least, Bagel Bites. Yes, Bagel Bites, tweeting things like this, a review of Ariana Grande's latest album, quote, Ari does a lot well, but her music about reconciling with past traumas and her mental health hits me best. When I think about how many lives this young woman has lived, I'm in awe. She describes love as experienced by a flawed, imperfect person in such a special way. Amazing. Bagel Bites has also tweeted out, promo for BTS's music and added a little 7 even to their Twitter name. Little 7 is used to indicate to Twitter users that you are a member of the BTS army, the fandom. So Bagel Bites is a big music stand, a big pop music stand, and that has led to a lot of followers and a lot of a lot of Twitter impressions and attention towards the brand just for tweeting about anything. What's in most interesting to me about this account is that it's run by someone who works for Bagel Bites, and if they just posted these tweets on their own account, who knows if they would have gone viral at all, but the fact that it is officially a Bagel Bites verified certified account, suddenly now everyone is so intrigued because this was not what they were expecting. Number five, Oreo. Oreo is a brand that has always stayed on top of Twitter trends and in general just what is happening in the world. In 2013, when the power went out during the Super Bowl, Oreo tweeted, you can still dunk in the dark, they had already made an ad and put the text, you can still dunk in the dark on it, way before you would have expected them to, very fast. And it got retweeted over 10,000 times within that hour during the Super Bowl power outage. Oreo is also feuded with some other brands. They played tic-tac-toe with the Kit Kat account. They also had a feud with AMC Theaters in 2012. Oreo tweeted, ever bring your own Oreo cookies to the movie theater? And AMC responded, not cool cookie in all caps. Oreo has also had some campaigns that are focused on virality, like the Daily Twist campaign back in 2002, which had a repeat version updated for 2019 where 
it was basically the slogan of that campaign is some people will do anything for an Oreo and they have famous faces do anything for an Oreo. The latest version of this campaign features these influencers who are doing some very odd things, like some of them would draw on their eyebrows in a way that made it look like Oreo cookies based on the three lines that they were using for their eyebrow makeup, things like that, just to pay tribute to the cookie. And this ad, being only just a six-second bizarre makeup tutorial, six-second makeup tutorial on YouTube, was named as the third most popular bumper ad on YouTube for that year. Similarly, utilizing the power of Instagram influencers as spokespeople is the fashion brand Boohoo, which is number six on this list. Boohoo is the owner of Pretty Little Thing and Nasty Gale and some other fashion labels too, and has 6.6 million Instagram followers. Boohoo has actually cashed in this year, despite the pandemic. Well, 2020, but pandemic year that feels never-ending. Boohoo is still cashing in on it. At, by the end of May 2020, so when pandemic lockdowns had been in full swing for a while, and people weren't really buying clothes if they were buying anything, suddenly their sales were up 45% in May. They've invested heavily in having their influencers, aka the Boohoo Babes, post on Instagram throughout this pandemic about staying at home in their loungewear and just wearing your must-haves around the house. And they, you know, have they've actually advertised that you know if you gotta stay home, might as well you know have a little photo shoot at home. Joking somewhat, only half joking comments like your cat will be impressed by this fashion show and other taglines like that. Just acting very, very relatable, and then tapping the most seemingly relatable faces that are popular on Instagram to help remind everyone Boohoo is relatable and you should buy their products. So they mix overt promo with more subtle product placement and things like that, and more relatable, fun content that you just see like any other account's content that's not advertised on Instagram or another app. They also get a lot of engagement on their social media thanks to giveaways and a lot of contests, which helps with follower counts and stuff, because when a brand says, you you know, if you want to win this item, follow this account and then do these two other steps, that leads to a lot of people following the account. Who knows if anyone actually ever wins those contests, but if you have a chance of winning, you have to follow them to be even considered for the running. And so people will follow the account in droves and then maybe forget they followed it, and then it's just part of their scrolling every day and they're still following it and don't ever think about, oh yeah, I guess I can unfollow, the contest deadline is over. So they bring in a lot of new, continuous, not just short-term following. Taking things a step further with the influencer space, the Boohoo account has Instagram Lives quite often. Instagram live streams featuring DJ sets, some nail art master classes and other tutorials, Q&As with popular influencers. It's basically like an influencer convention, beauty conventions like BeautyCon or VidCon, those YouTuber or social media star conventions, meet and greet type settings, all through Instagram Live. That is naturally not an uncommon thing right now due to the pandemic, but even before that, Boohoo was utilizing Instagram Live to just bring a party into your home. Number seven, Chanel. Chanel is a luxury fashion brand that has 36 million Instagram followers, one of the most followed fashion brands and brands, period, on Instagram. Chanel sees a lot of engagement 
not for the same reasons as Boohoo, but with the same sort of strategy, by having famous faces help be a part of their work, and by creating video content that seems like it's just any other content from any other influencer, not just a straight-up advertisement. They have a lot of short films that show off their fashion, and so you kind of forget they're an ad because they're also a short film, and the characters just happen to be wearing a Chanel wardrobe. For example, they had a film called Over the Moon, and on YouTube, throughout just the course of two weeks, 74,000 people had viewed it, which may not seem like much compared to some YouTube videos, but keep in mind it is an ad. So if you think of it that way, 74,000 people voluntarily watching a full lawn ad, relatively lawn ad, that's a big deal. Plus, it had additionally, throughout just two days of its release, 469,000 views on Instagram. Number eight, Glossier. The founder of this makeup company calls it, quote, the first socially driven beauty brand, unquote. What they do over time is try to stay driven by their social message and keep up the interest in new products by having a long rollout period. So they mix very trademark messaging with very long-term teases about new products coming. They also have teases that aren't what you think. It's not like just a straight-up countdown. Our new product is launching in five days, four days, three days, etc. But also, for example, Beyonce wore one of their then-unnamed products for a performance, and then they announced this is the launch of the product that Beyonce wore at such and such event. So they let artists test out their products and promote them without even you having any awareness about the fact it is a commercial, essentially, for their new product. Count also benefits by regularly engaging with its followers in the comment section on Instagram posts. Basically, data mining in a way, because when fans provide feedback about what products they want to see next and how they want to review certain products of this company's then the company takes that feedback and it's like a focus group in some ways that they can use in the future. Number nine, Brooklinen. Brooklinen had the best marketing campaign I've probably ever seen via email. Their promo emails were such a big trick and it wasn't even in April for an April Fool's Day prank. This was in November of 2017 where they sent out an advertisement email in people's inbox that said this. Hey team, excited about the big sale tomorrow and everything should be ready to go. Can you guys click through the links below to make sure everything is working properly on site? See test email below. Mark, digital marketing intern. The subject line of that email was in all caps, needs approval. So it definitely looks like a business email. It does not look like an ad. It looks like, hey team, let's prepare for this presentation tomorrow with an official sign off and everything. It looked very, very official, and people got very, very spooked, like, what assignment? And that was so smart. If I were one of the people who had gotten that email, I would have been probably mad and not impressed, but I, as an outsider to this experiment, am very impressed. That fear is something, because when you're in that mode, maybe you're panic buying, too. There is some psychology to that of people who go into stores with fast-paced music or other elements that are meant to make you feel nervous. That actually makes you want to impulse buy more, so... Smart on many levels, not just because it gets your attention, because maybe you're more inclined to buy what they are offering, just to feel less nervous in the moment and just say, okay, fine, I'll do this, calm them down, and then I will calm down. 10. Target. There actually has been some psychological research on places like Target and why they appeal. This lecturer on consumer behavior at Philadelphia University named David Loringer basically put it like this, quote, 
they look at who you are tangibly, how much money you make, your gender, where you live, etc., and psychographically, your hobbies, lifestyles, ethics, and mix their product, price, place, and promotion in various combinations that resonate with who you are as a person. Basically saying that they don't look at their customers through just one dimension of let's market to them based on price because we look at them and assume social class or let's market to them based on outfit type based on, you know, who they, what their job might be or something like that. Instead of just looking for a one-to-one one correlation, they look at so many variables in an algorithm of sorts and they use their data to get to know you better than you know yourself almost, and looking at so many aspects of who you are and combining them. You've probably noticed that compared to some brands like Walmart, Target does not focus on the price match guarantee promo or any other cost-reducing promo. That's not really part of their branding. It's part of the reason people jokingly will call it Target, the French pronunciation, because people don't feel like they're shopping at a discount store. Target will still promote deals, of course, every store does, but they don't focus on low prices in their advertising at the expense of other forms of persuasion. They don't do it at the expense of other forms of persuasion, they do it in addition to other forms of persuasion. So the fact that their ads and their whole appeal is so successful is because it is multifaceted. It is this also just an inviting, memorable experience because of the actual environment itself. It's got big roomy aisles that people enjoy walking through. It's got just the lighting is not too much, not too dim. It's the whole the whole color scheme is cute. The whole aesthetic with the cartoon dog is cute and fun. And it's just very a likable environment. Plus, put good catchy pop music on and you've got a fun party setting, essentially. It's also fun when you're a little kid. It just has all these little details that as a kid you love, like there's a little built-in Starbucks in some star in some targets. The little kids might get a little free cup of something. And as a kid, maybe you're playing on and sitting on the big red statue, the red ball outside the doorways. There's the cartoon dog everywhere that's fun for kids to see, sometimes a big inflatable version or something like that. So it's just a very family-friendly and welcoming environment that appeals to you specifically as a consumer on more levels than one. There are also some exclusive opportunities to buy certain things you can't get anywhere else. So it's not just about the actual environment being unique, but the items you can buy there. Target has had a lot of unique collaborations like Disney Channel inspired outfits and the Lily Pulitzer line of clothes. And the music industry is in on that action too with a lot of exclusively at Target album releases where you can only get bonus tracks if you buy the album at Target. Some honorable mentions include Gucci, which has 35.6 million Instagram followers and has campaigns that are very attention-worthy, like the 24-hour ace campaign, as it's called, which has been a thing since 2016, where they release these videos that feature their sneakers. Basically, they call it a design brought to life, and you get to look at the very 3D popping off the computer screen image of their shoes in 360 degrees. It's a collaboration with multimedia artists to bring an art design to life. 
A lot of snack brands with Twitter presences deserve honorable mentions, and I could go on and on about these feuds. Probably the funniest one to me is just any feud Wendy's gets into with Burger King or McDonald's. But there are also funny feuds with, like, Honda, the car, versus Nature Valley. Honda tweeted about how Nature Valley bars always get crumbs in the car, and then Nature Valley basically responded saying that's a crummy joke, etc., Moon Pie and Hostess got into a feud over which one should be labeled the official snack for the summer eclipse back in 2017, and so they really were kind of roasting each other and shaming each other trying to get that spot. So again, going back to the conversation we started on the last episode, what is the point? Not just to make people buy stuff, but why do these brands create such an online personality, such a personality in general, that makes you feel like if a brand were a person, you could picture that person in your head? How and why do they do that and go to that extent? Part of it can be explained through Scott Atkins' work called The Culting of Brands, When Customers Become True Believers, which compares brand loyalty to a cult mindset. I will bring up the counter-argument in a minute, but what he argues is that Fans become this ultimate ideal consumer because once that you have their loyalty, you can have their money very quickly after that. You after you establish that baseline loyalty. A similar train of thought was proposed by Robert V. Kozinets from York University in Toronto, who wrote a piece called "Fan Creep: Why Brands Suddenly Need Fans," and he described feature creep and fan creep. Feature creep being this tendency to keep updating features to make an old product seem new iPhones are a great example of that, and then fan creep being the inevitable inevitable result of consumerism, excessive marketing, that type of culture. Feature creep and fan creep feed into each other, and so he argues that feature creep basically makes you feel like you need to buy the newest model of whatever you have because of the new detail it has. Fan creep, then, is a bit similar, but just makes you feel like you need to do that to up your fan status, not just to feel excluded, but also it would be a bigger loss of your identity as a fan now. Feature creep is considered super negative due to unnecessarily complicating the use of things and also potentially muddling the goals and argument in favor of buying a product in the first place, like what's the point if you have to keep changing and updating it? But some brands still go with this, and Kozinets views the strategy over time as strategists have realized the importance of showing sincerity towards fans. They need to treat fans like fans instead of consumers, and see that fans get any veneer, any facade. And so he argues that fan creep and future creep are things to be aware of, but that they can be combated and are now. Fans do want more transparency from these brands now that they have access to the internet and can feel like these brands are people with personalities, therefore can be held more accountable as humans. Kevin Roberts, the CEO of this global advertising firm, wrote this book in 2004 called Love Marks, and he argues that brand loyalty is in decline because people are seeing past the facade. They know when you're being relatable and when you're just trying to sell them something. They're becoming more critical of that stuff. He cites the rational thought being used over the emotional components now towards ads as causing the ads to now be in a moment where they need to figure out what to do and change course. Customers are not rational thinkers through and through. They are do have that emotional component to their buying. So this author argues that the marketing campaigns shouldn't be one-dimensional either. Essentially arguing in favor of Target's approach to marketing and making it multifaceted. 
he uses phrases like loyalty beyond reason and things like that to describe this group of fans. And similar authors have also wrote about how certain terminology has been co-opted, like raves, right? Raves as in, you know, you go for your favorite music versus a raving review of a product. A product got rave reviews. Terms like that are now suddenly used in both fan and consumer spaces to blur those lines. This author argues that the shift is going to inevitably require products to be sold with more than money in mind. Critics of his view, though, say that he's advocating for a strategy that is no more ethical, because the brands who take his advice will just be putting on a fake sense of authenticity. So instead of faking it, essentially, they will be faking the fact that they're not faking still. But the author gets that irony and doesn't mean that brands should just strive to tap into these more emotional side of appeals, but he just argues that emotional and rational reactions are intrinsically somehow related and you can't entirely disentangle them. They are related entities, your emotions and your logic, and so your brand campaign needs to take into account both factors as well. I would agree with him on some levels and not on others. I would agree that consumers are becoming more critical of ads and more aware of product placement and stuff because of the media, and just so much exposure over time we can start in our brains to develop these patterns of what we recognize as marketing and what not. I would also argue, though, that those lines do continue to be blurred of what is a genuine endorsement from an influencer because they love the product and what they were just paid to say. There is still some lack of transparency on certain apps. As much as the consumers are getting more aware of this stuff and more critical of it, there are still more forums being developed every day for people to have deceptive marketing. And so I do think logic and emotions will continue back and forth about which which appeal is more more successful, the logic-based or emotion-based. Though we will have a back and forth because people are not are becoming more critical, but they're still not abandoning those emotional impulsive buys based on someone they adore online buying the same product or something like that. In an episode of 17 Karat K-Pop, my other podcast, I break down further how the experience economy has become the new norm. And so we expect more from companies because we went through several economic stages that I break down in that episode. And at the end of these stages now is the point where we don't just want them to give us the ingredients or the craft supplies or whatever. And then we go home and make that stuff. Now the economy has progressed to the point where we buy the finished product and we buy the experience and the atmosphere to go with it. I break that down more in the episode called Dyna Fortnite, D-Y-N-A-F-O-R-T-N-I-T-E, if you're interested in more about that. We will move on to a totally new topic next week on how to stand. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next week.